Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Some people have to work two jobs or more to make ends meet. They can't afford childcare or healthcare. Each day, they battle the same frustrations and emotions that each of us carry inside with the added misery of poverty and disadvantage. The working poor live among us, hidden in plain sight. Yet those of us who have time to read the New York Times, to browse the web, or to listen to podcasts, those of us with time and access, often complain that we don't have time. This complaint echoes the cry of the disciples in Matthew, who repeatedly beg Jesus to send the needy away. The Syrophoenician woman in Matthew is the Lord's answer to this complaint. Like that of the disciples, her cry is persistent, but it reflects a different kind of thinking, one born out of need. If I were a rich man, the famed Tevye exclaimed, I would discuss the holy books with learned men seven hours every day. That would be the sweetest thing of all. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you're listening to episode 317 of the Bible as Literature podcast. A Russian Jewish friend of mine, a colleague at work, was visiting in town and he came up to me and he said, You know, I have to tell you something. You remind me of Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> which for me is a great compliment, to be honest. But anyways, it got me thinking about that Broadway show, which was a favorite of my dad. So I went back and watched it. And there's a beautiful line in the song, If I Were a Rich Man, where the character, Tevye, who's very interested in education and Torah, he wants his son-in-laws to be learned men. And he talks about how if he had money, he would want to spend his time studying the sacred books with the elders in the synagogue. I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something along those lines. And I always think of that Broadway character when I'm reading about the Syrophoenician woman. One time I met an Orthodox rabbi, and I asked, how is it possible that these Orthodox Jews are able to spend so much time studying Torah? What he said is they get jobs and they construct their lives around the study of Torah. That's why you get the traditional diamond trade in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, because they could work in the shop, close for half a day on Wednesday and all weekend, and that way they would have time to study Torah. There is this tradition among Orthodox Jews that you do 
organize your life around studying Torah. And Tevye wished he could, but you know, he's a milkman and he doesn't get days off. He has to be working all the time, either milking or delivering milk. The desire to study Torah, the desire to make the study of Torah part of one's life in the Midrash, God himself studies Torah twice a day. There is this idea that studying this word is central to understanding those things that are most important, but even is worthy in and of itself, even by the master of the universe, God himself, studying Torah is something that's important in and of itself. As the character in the play said, you study Torah so that you know who you are, and more importantly, what God expects of you. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Right out of the gate, in verse 21 and verse 22, we have to take note of the location and the identity of the woman. She is a Canaanite. She is unclean. She is of the people who were exterminated from the land in the book of Joshua and in the book of Deuteronomy. And she was, interestingly, from the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon have an important history in the Bible, especially Tyre appears in the prophetic works as a very rich place. It was the port between the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Originally, it was an island. According to the history that we know, when Alexander the Great tried to conquer it, he had to create a way to cross the water across the Mediterranean to go from the land to the island, this island city. And the story goes that his soldiers each carried rocks out into the edge of the beach until there was finally a land bridge to the city, and Alexander the Great eventually conquered the city. The city in the Bible and the prophets is a Phoenician city, and Phoenicians were known for being traders. These two cities today sit at the most southern part of Lebanon, near the modern state of Israel. This was a very important region, but it was beyond the pale of Judahite society. So Jesus is leaving the area of the Judahites into the area of the Phoenicians, the Canaanites. So the Phoenicians are considered one of the groups of Canaanites. So Jesus is going out to this Gentile land. Now, we don't have to ask why Jesus would go to this Gentile land, because we've been reading what Jesus does all the time for 14 chapters, which is teach the teaching. So we know he's going here to teach. Who he's trying to teach, how he's trying to teach, what is he trying to teach, Each of those questions we can see unfold as this chapter progresses. Understanding that she is a Canaanite, understanding that she is from the district of Tyre and Sidon, or presumably, I mean, that's where Jesus encounters her. It's striking that this one cries out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Remember, this is the Gospel of Matthew, where we begin with the proposition that Jesus is the true heir to the throne, and the kingdom that he ushers in is the true Zion, not the land of Israel and Palestine as we know it today, but the heavenly city from Ezekiel. This one is referring to Jesus 
as the rightful heir of the eschatological throne of David. She's calling him the son of David. And she is confessing to him that her daughter is demon-possessed. She's asking for instruction. She is asking to have access to that discussion that takes place in the synagogue between elders. It's a privileged discussion. I think often about the importance of taking advantage of the opportunity we have because we have time in this society. I know we think we don't have time, but turn off Netflix and you'll find there's lots of extra time. We have time to do this work. We have time and access to be able to study Torah with people who are much more educated than we are. All of us have access to books. So we don't understand this woman's need the way people who really don't have time or resources might understand her need. She is calling out for help because her daughter is unevangelized. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that calling Jesus son of David is a problem, just as you mentioned, Father. He's not here to be David in the way that people think he's here to be David. He's not here to be a son of David, but in fact, the son of God. Okay, but why would a Canaanite call Jesus Lord and even care about the son of David? I mean, she's a Canaanite. She's not a Judahite. If he were the son of David and a king of Judah, he would not have jurisdiction over her. So she is already going beyond her own identity as a Phoenician, as a Canaanite, and calling this person bringing Torah a son of David and placing herself under his jurisdiction. So we're going to have to see how this unfolds, because Jesus's reaction is a bit ambiguous, but then he finally comes down clearly, as he always does, and we get to understand better who this character is and how this character functions. This woman is putting the screws to Jesus. This woman who shouldn't know scripture understands that Jesus is not the Messiah just for the people from Judea. So she's cornering him. He's going to have to deal with her. She's putting him on the spot. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. So not only does she understand that irrespective of her identity, no matter where she comes from or what tribe she belongs to, she, like Ruth, understands that the tribe of the Most High is her homeland, and she recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and the King. So she's appealing to him. It's striking in Matthew that the expression Son of David functions differently depending on who's using it. Because if you're a Judahite and you say Son of David, it might be risky business to talk that way. But if you're clearly not a Jew and you speak this way, something else is going on. At a minimum, you're asking for a kind of adoption. That's why I'm saying, Rich, she's putting Jesus in a difficult spot. And of course, the disciples, because they care so much about the flock, <laughs> want her to quiet down and they want to send her away. 
once again, they demonstrate that they have no clue what their teacher's all about. It's just like when the disciples were worried that Jesus might have offended the scribes and the Pharisees by saying that they don't understand. You know, the disciples consistently misunderstand the entire situation. Jesus takes this tension of the Canaanite woman and the ignorance of the disciples, and he uses both in order to teach a lesson about how he approaches the non-Judahite, the non-Israelite, with this teaching. She's engaged in Bible study with Jesus, which is striking. She's forcing Jesus with her persistence, but also her premise that the kingdom is open to her as a Canaanite. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is the quandary that Jesus is facing. He knows that the proclamation of the gospel is an invitation to not just the Canaanites, but to all the nations in the historical setting of this text, to the Romans, obviously, and the Greeks, to enter under the authority and the aegis of God's law. But within the narrative arc of the Gospel of Matthew, he has not yet been crucified. The work isn't complete. At this point in the story arc, his responsibility is to go and minister first to the lost sheep of the flock of his father. And then he can go out and bring more in. Is this an answer to the disciples who say, send her away, she cries after us, and he's like, I'm not even going to deal with people who aren't of the house of Israel. They're not even my flock, so I'm not going to tell them where to go at all. Or is he responding to the cries of the woman and saying, look, I'm not dealing with you. Either way, Jesus is saying that she is on the outside of his flock. This even heightens the tension where she says son of David, because David, of course, is the shepherd king, and she wants to be part of this flock. And he's saying, you're not part of the flock. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. She is expressing her trust in Jesus which in the Gospel of Matthew is to express your trust in the commandment of God. She is making herself a daughter of Abraham's household by her submission to the one who brings the Torah to all those in his path. And she is crying out for help. It is an expression of complete trust. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a central issue here because the dog is the metaphor for the unclean, the Gentile dog. And here Jesus is saying to this woman, look, you're a dog. You're one of the dogs. Why should I throw the crumbs from the table? Which, by the way, are the crumbs of instruction. These are the crumbs that are on the table when the elders sit in the synagogue to discuss the sacred books. Why should I share those crumbs with you? Just as she cornered him, he's putting it right back in her face, and he's not holding back. This is such a strange statement to the one who was saying that all you need is five loaves. 
to feed an entire multitude, and now he's acting like there's not enough crumbs to go around. It's strange. Jesus is obviously trying to make a point to his disciples who don't understand, because they just want him to send her away, but he's also trying to see what she has her faith in, her trust in. That's the most important part. She continues to say, Lord, help me, even when he ignores her. And again, Jesus is sounding like he's got a very select flock, that's Israel, and he's going and finding the lost sheep of that flock. And this way he's saying he's got a very clear household. He feeds the humans. The dogs fend for themselves. The father feeds the children. Okay? You are not one of the children. Therefore, you fend for yourself. Like you said, Father, he is putting it in her face and pushing her and pushing her trust. Does she actually trust in him as son of David, or is he flattering her trying to get something for her daughter? We're going to have to see how this works. Is this a Gentile king who's trying to make a deal with a foreign king, or is this someone who's actually submitting to this king, this son of David supposedly, but in fact the son of God, who is the king of Israel and the shepherd of this flock? I think you're right that he's speaking to the disciples. He's pushing her, and he's using her the way that Paul in Romans explains that God uses the sin of Israel. Here it's in reverse. He's going to use her trust to shame the disciples who represent the 12 tribes. Because just as in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, they weren't interested in the bread and they wanted to send the people away. And they're still not interested in the bread. And Jesus is putting her in a position to show exactly where she stands with respect to the heavenly bread, which is the divine commandment. This is the verse that always reminds me of that character, Tevia, from Fiddler on the Roof. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Because of her poverty, she understands the value of Bible study. She sees that her daughter is in need of instruction. She understands the value of what Jesus proclaims and teaches. She accepts that she's a Gentile dog, and all she wants is to sit at the feet of the master and gather up the crumbs that fall off of the table in the synagogue because she understands that when the elders discuss Torah, when Jesus discusses the sacred books with his father, when Jesus then turns and teaches his disciples, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, she understands the value of every word he speaks, and she's willing to literally eat it off of the floor. The disciples, on the other hand, don't value anything except convenience. Jesus is this master chess player when he has this discussion. He's not having an idle argument like the scribes and Pharisees. When he deigns to argue or to respond, he only does so to teach the disciples and teach the crowds. Here he pushes this woman to either leave and get sick of arguing with him or to get to the point that she gets to here, which is that she wants the crumbs. All she needs is a crumb. And it ends up that she says exactly the opposite of what the disciples said in the desert when they said, oh, you know, we just don't have enough bread to feed everybody. We only have five loaves. And this woman says, all I need is a crumb. All I'm asking for is a crumb here. 
the disciples who believe you have to have everything all in place, all set up in order to teach. This woman says, anything that I can get, any bit of the teaching I'm willing to accept. All I'm asking for is a teaching and a word that will heal my daughter. If you don't respect knowledge so much that you would keep your mouth shut in the presence of an elder speaking to another elder, you don't understand the faith of the Seraphonician woman. She understands the value of the conversation between Jesus and the Father, and she's willing to take any scrap from that conversation, which is the Torah, any scrap of wisdom from that book. And the disciples are just trying to figure out how to get everyone away so that they can, I don't know, set up shop and watch Netflix. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. She cornered Jesus and she left him no choice but to heal her daughter through instruction, parenthetically, because of her immutable trust in the commandment of the Father. Ultimately, Jesus can't turn her away if she obeys what he says. And it would be an embarrassment for him to turn her away when his own students don't get it. He has no choice, Rich. He has to feed her the instruction. Because she did, in fact, trust that one crumb of Jesus's teaching would be enough to heal her daughter. She was waiting for any taste of that instruction. And, you know, these poor disciples who are surrounded by a four-course meal every night and still don't understand what is being taught. She just wants one crumb, which shows that, in fact, she already understands. And because she already understands, she is not of a different flock. She is indeed of this shepherd's flock because she hears this master's voice. I'm going to take from a different gospel. And when she recognizes this master's voice, she will follow him wherever he goes. She will eat whatever he provides. And if he provides something, that is precisely what she wants. She only wants a word of provision, a word that will teach, a word that will heal. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.